If you had to choose one word to describe the state of the world that we are in right now, what word would you choose? Think about that for a second, okay? If you had to pick one word that would explain kind of where we're at in our society, what word do you think would best capture it? I'm going to give you a minute to just kind of think that, think about that in your head. I, uh, I threw out this question to a few of my friends yesterday, and uh, one of the answers that I got back was uncertain. Maybe that's the word that came to mind uh, for some of you here this morning. Another response that I got was grieving. That's something that we can all identify with in some way. Um, some of the other, other answers I got back were uh, scared, lost, fallen, broken. But there was another theme that kept coming up again and again. And I'd be willing to bet that a lot of you uh, here in this room or watching online landed on something similar. I'm willing to bet that what came to mind for uh, many of you here this morning was something along the lines of the words divided or polarized. It doesn't take much uh, scrolling on the internet or eavesdropping on conversations into importance to recognize that this is a big part of the reality of the world that we're living in right now. Now, the truth is that as human beings, we've been dividing ourselves up into groups uh, throughout all of history, right? This is just something that human beings do. We gather together around uh, shared hobbies and political views and values. The structures in our society tend to divide us up according to our social status, whether we are rich or poor, whether we're educated or uneducated. We get divided up according to our age and our race and our gender. This has been going on in different ways, shapes, and forms throughout all of human history. But the division and the polarization and really the amount of anger that's charging uh, the interactions that we're having with one another in the moment of history that we're in right now is really like unlike anything that we've ever experienced in our lifetime. Would you agree? Yeah. <laughs> From the beginning of the pandemic, there were all kinds of opinions about how we should be navigating it about what should stay open and about what should be closed, about whether we should be wearing masks, about whether we shouldn't have to wear masks. And as things progressed, every uh, new public health measure came with a new wave of controversy. We had conflict about uh, vaccines, right? Who should get the vaccines first caused conflict. And we had vaccines about whether, or, uh, conflict about whether vaccines should be required in different settings. And as if the pandemic wasn't dividing us enough, we've also been going through all kinds of social and political upheaval over the course of the past two years that's exposed even more of our differences and kind of pitted us against one another. And so in the moment of time that we're in, as we look around at the wreckage of the pandemic, one of the most cha uh, challenging things we have before us is to try to figure out how to heal and how to move forward 
from the divisions that have been tearing apart our families and our friendships and our communities? How do we get from where we are today to a place where we don't yell at each other in public when we find ourselves on different sides of a divisive issue? How do we get from where we are today to a place where we can trust each other and show respect to each other even when we don't agree? How do we get to a place where our communities and especially our churches are less characterized by polarization and conflict and more defined by love and mutual care? It's a big question, isn't it? This morning, we are back in our series on the church as a community of grace. And we're going to look at an aspect of grace that is incredibly relevant for us as we think about these questions and navigate the conflict uh, and the division that has impacted us so deeply. One of the most distinctive things, actually, about the world that Jesus lived in and the social uh, context that the early church developed in was that there were social boundaries that divided people up into groups, very rigid social boundaries. And these groups of people hated each other, They didn't understand each other. They were judgmental towards one another. It was a world where there were very clear boundaries that determined who was in and who was out, and who had value and who didn't have value, and who had access to God's blessing and who was beyond the reach of God's love. This wasn't a world where tolerance was something that people valued. This wasn't the the kind of place where you saw people driving around with bumper stickers that said things like, coexist on their cars. This was a world where markers determined very clearly, clearly who belonged where, and then you didn't eat with people or worship with people or even interact with people across those boundaries. But when the early apostles took the gospel out into that world... They didn't tailor it or modify it in order to make it more marketable to the different groups. Instead, they preached a gospel that called people into a whole new way of doing life together that was unlike anything that anyone had ever seen or experienced. They preached a gospel that called people into a community that overhauled all of the boundaries that divided them and invited them to experience a deep sense of unity with one another as they found their identity in Christ. This morning, we're going to look at a passage where Paul talks about grace as the foundation to this radical unity. And then we're going to look at some ways that we can move forward together in Christ and start to work this out within the context of our fractured relationships. So if you have your Bible, you can open it up with me to Ephesians chapter 2. And this morning, we're going to be looking at verses 11 to 22. Ephesians 2, 11 to 22. Now, some of you may remember that way back in the first sermon on this series, we looked at the first section of Ephesians chapter 2. And it's important to keep that context in mind as we read our passage this morning. In the first half of Ephesians chapter 2, Paul really summarizes the essence of the gospel. 
He explains that once we were dead in our sin, but through Jesus' death and resurrection, we've been saved. Not because of anything we've done, not because we have earned it, not because we deserve it, not because we're going to be able to pay it back, but rather it's a gift of God's grace. Verses four to five summarize it really well. They say, but God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It's only by God's grace that you have been saved. And so as we continue into our passage this morning, Paul's really building on this idea. Unity isn't an afterthought to the Apostle Paul. It's an essential component of what it means to live in light of Jesus' death and resurrection. It's central to the gospel. So let's have a look at verse 11. Paul says, Don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. You were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews who were proud of their circumcision even though it affected only their bodies and not their hearts. Okay, I'm just going to pause there, okay? I'm just going to name it. This is a little weird, <laughs> okay? If you're not, if you've been in church for a while, if you're not super familiar with the Bible, this is kind of weird. Uncircumcised heathen, it's not an insult that we hear tossed around a whole lot uh, in our culture, in our day and age, is it? This isn't one of the things that we see popping up when people are kind of attacking each other on the internet. I, I haven't seen this one yet, okay? But it would make complete sense to the people who were reading this letter because circumcision was one of the most distinctive identity markers of the Jewish people. It identified who belonged within the, the community of the Israelites as, as one of God's chosen people and who didn't. So Paul is pointing to a reality that the Gentiles knew very well, which is that once they were on the outside and the Jewish people saw them as being beyond the scope of God's blessing. So if you're looking for uh, an insult, you want to start integrating into some of your arguments, it's, it's, it's on the table. Verse 12, in those days, you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel, and you did not know the covenant promises God had made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope. But now you have been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you have been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people. When in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. Now, Paul is using this image of a wall of hostility to represent all of the things that kept the Gentiles on the outside of God's promises, right? Like the law, they hadn't been given the law. But this image would have been especially powerful to Paul's readers. 
Because within the Jewish temple, there was a literal wall that kept the Gentiles out of the holier areas of that building. And on the wall, there was a sign. And the sign warned the Gentiles that if they were to cross over to the other side, they would be politely asked to leave. No, that's not what it said. It warned the Gentiles that if they were to cross over to the other side, they would be put to death. Okay, they never had to guess, the Gentiles, about whether or not they were welcome. It was very clear. It was a definite no. But on the cross, Jesus tore down the wall of hostility. He destroyed everything that divided these two groups by creating a new group of people in himself. Verse 16. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross, and our hostility towards each other was put to death. Notice Paul's play on words there. Through his death, Jesus put our hostility to death. He brought this good news of peace to you Gentiles who were far away from him and peace to the Jews who were were near. Now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. And now Paul's going to use three different images to kind of paint a picture of how things have changed for the Gentiles through Jesus' death and resurrection. He says, so now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You're citizens along with all God's holy people. You're members of God's family. Together, we are his house built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We're carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him, you Gentiles are also being made a part of this dwelling where God lives by his spirit. So first, Paul says that the Gentiles are now citizens. They're no longer, not longer, they're no longer aliens or strangers. They are citizens of the kingdom of God. They are a part of God's holy people. And then he uses a more intimate metaphor. He says that the Gentiles are now members of God's family. And then he says that all of God's people, the Jews and the Gentiles together, are being built into a new temple with Christ as the cornerstone. We just sang a song about the cornerstone, didn't we? Christ is the cornerstone, that stone that kind of acts as the reference point for the rest of the building. And it's important that we remember the Jewish people understood the temple as the place where God's presence existed in the world. So when Paul uses this metaphor, he's pointing to the reality that God's presence will be known and experienced through this group of people who once hated each other and avoided each other at all costs, but now have been reconciled to God and to one another through Jesus' death and resurrection. To Paul, there's no separating our reconciliation with God from our reconciliation with one another. They go hand in hand. Each one of us has been reconciled to God by grace and grace alone. And in Christ, all of the things that once divided us have been defeated and we have unity 
in him. And that's a really nice sentiment, isn't it? We all love the idea of unity. It's a beautiful idea. But the truth is, in practice, it's incredibly difficult to live out. As recently as the 1960s, people most often decided which church they would go to based on its geographic location. People went to the church that was closest to where they lived. And so churches tended to reflect the level of diversity of the neighborhood that they were located in. Today, we decide which church to go to based on our theological preferences, based on the kind of teaching and music that we like, based on the programs that the churches offer. And research out of the United States, but I imagine it would be similar in Canada, has shown that as cities have become more and more diverse, that churches have actually become less and less diverse. It's interesting. Diversity is a challenge, even at the best of times, because we all have a natural tendency to gravitate towards people who have things in common with us. But the division that we've experienced over the last couple of years goes far beyond our natural inclinations into, to separate into groups with people who are similar to us. We've become hostile towards each other, haven't we? We've gotten to the point where we don't know how to be in a relationship with somebody who sees things differently than we do. We've gotten to the point where we can't have conversations about certain topics without it blowing up into a fight or feeling the need to withdraw from the other person completely and kind of cut off our relationship. And over the last week, I've been thinking a lot about why that is. What is it that's made the pandemic so unbelievably polarizing? I mean, we've been disagreeing with people for our entire lives. But most of the time, we're able to see past our differences and find common ground with the people that we interact with on a day-to-day basis. So what is it about the pandemic that's made this feel so impossible? Maybe some of you have some ideas. Maybe you've uh, spent some time thinking about that too. And of course, there's all kinds of things that we could talk about. I mean, social media, I think, probably hasn't helped, right? Algorithms, the devil's playground, it's bad news. But I think that the the best explanation that I've heard from this came from uh, Jeff Lockyer in a sermon that he preached at uh, Southridge, which is one of our Mennonite Brethren churches in Niagara a few weeks ago. And in that message, Jeff talked about some of the skills that he learned when he was a lifeguard. And the set of skills was called defenses and releases. Defenses and releases. Maybe some of you have lifeguarding histories. Maybe this is familiar to to you. It's all new to me. But the reason that lifeguards need to be trained in defense and release techniques is because when you go to rescue someone who's drowning, believe it or not, their first instinct isn't to express their appreciation to you. Their first instinct isn't even to listen to your guidance and to help make the rescue easier for you. Do you know what their first instinct is? Their first instinct 
is to grab onto you and hold you under the water so that they can stay afloat. When someone is in the crisis of drowning, their survival instincts will drive them to do whatever it takes to keep their head above the water, even if that means taking down the person who's there to help them. Have you had any moments over the course of the past two years when you felt like you were drowning? Each of us has been drastically impacted by COVID. It's caused layer upon layer of crisis within our society. It's caused the physical health crisis, of course, with the virus, but it's also caused a mental health crisis, it caused an economic crisis, it's caused all kinds of uh, crisis situations within our relationships and our workplaces. None of us have been untouched. And the survival instinct of a person in crisis is to hold other people down to keep themselves from going under. So I wonder how much of the anger and the outrage that's driving our division is rooted in the reality that each one of us is trying to survive a crisis situation. And we've all been hit to different extent by different layers of the crisis. And so really, it makes sense that our relationships have been strained in the midst of all of that. And maybe recognizing that can help us to have a little bit more grace with one another. And maybe recognizing that can help us to be a little bit more aware of what's going on when we feel that survival instinct welling up inside of us that wants to reach out and hold someone else underneath the water. And maybe that's the first step to letting things cool off a little bit in our polarized world. But I think the bigger challenge we have before us is how to actually move forward towards this oneness and this unity that the New Testament calls us to. In our culture, we talk a lot about tolerance. But as followers of Jesus, we're called uh, to do more than just tolerate each other. We're called to actually love each other. And we're not just called to love our friends or people who uh, agree with us or think the same way, way we do. We're called to love even our enemies. And we're not called to love them just in theory or in principle. We're called to love them in real life. So how do we get from here? Siri. <laughs> she didn't... Did, did, what I just said, was that confusing? Because... Siri didn't understand. She didn't catch it. I hope you caught it. Anyways, <laughs> how do we get from here to there? Now, obviously, there's no formula to this, and you should know by now I'm not really a formula person anyways. I'm a millennial, right? We don't do formulas. But Paul's letters uh, show us that this was really messy in the early church, Paul was constantly dealing with conflicts and uh, divisions and pointing people back to the gospel that united them. 
But this morning, we're going to talk about four practices that scripture calls us to that I think can help us move beyond this polarization and towards the sense of oneness and unity that Paul describes in the book of Ephesians. And the first practice is this. Anchor your identity in Christ. Now, it might seem strange that the first thing I'm suggesting we need to do in order to resolve our conflict with others has nothing to do with others. But so often, the conflict that we have with other people is rooted in our own insecurity and our own need for validation. There's a great book called uh, Disunity in Christ by an author uh, and an academic named Christina Cleveland, and she's a a social psychologist and a theologian. It's a pretty cool combination. And in it, she playfully says this. I know that this is a a tad bit dark, but if someone approached me confessing an uncomfortable bout of low self-esteem and asking for a quick and dirty boost to their self-esteem, I would advise that person to put someone else down. The unfortunate truth is that the easiest and most effective way to boost your own image is to lower someone else's. So she's she's a researcher, right? So she's looking at research. This is just true. Okay, the easiest way to boost your self-esteem is to put another person down. And this isn't shocking to you, right? We've all experienced this. There's something about putting other people down that makes us feel better about ourselves. It's terrible, but... It's true. But when we have a secure sense of who we are and our worth as someone who's made in God's image, we become less defensive. It's easier to listen to other perspectives with humility and with an openness to learning from someone, even if we don't necessarily agree with them. One of my favorite passages in scripture is found in John chapter 13, just before Jesus washes his disciples' feet. And this is a job that was assigned uh, to slaves at this time, right? The lowest of the low in this society. And so aside from just the plain and simple grossness of washing someone's dirty feet, this was a shocking act of humility because Jesus was willing to identify himself with the people who had the lowest social standing in this culture. And just before he does it, John tells us this in verse 3. Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything and that he had come from God and would return to God. So he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist and poured water into a basin. And then he starts to wash his disciples' feet. Jesus knew who he was. He knew he had authority over everything. He knew who his father was and that soon he would be back in his presence. So he didn't have anything to prove. And because of that, he was free to serve and to love in this sacrificial way. His ego didn't need to be protected. Over the last couple of years, without even realizing it, a lot of us have wrapped our identity up in our perspectives on COVID. 
because it's consumed so much of our lives. And so when people have a different perspective on it, it feels like an attack against us. But the most foundational part of our identity isn't our opinion about COVID or the political party that we vote for or our favorite baseball team. The most foundational part of our identity is that each one of us is a child of God and we belong in his family. And when we anchor our identity in that reality, it's a whole lot easier to have healthy relationships with people who see things differently than us. The second practice we're called to that I think could really help us overcome our polarization is similar to that. It's this, seeing others through the eyes of Christ. So most of us have fallen into the trap of wrapping our own identities up and our perspectives on COVID. But I think we've fallen prey to an even greater extent to reducing other people's identity to their opinions about COVID. And in different ways, we've always really kind of been prone to this. We're really good at giving people labels based on a few things that they say or a few things that they do, and then assuming that we know everything that there is to know about them. But the truth is that there's so much more to each of us than any one of our opinions on anything can really capture. As followers of Jesus, we believe that each and every human being was made in the image of God. We believe that each and every human being is a person that Jesus died for and has a purpose for. And we believe that each and every human being is invited to be a part of God's family. Which means that as the saying goes, there is no us and them. There's only us. We belong to each other. And we're called to extend love towards each other, even though when the world tells us that it doesn't make sense. When we see each other through the eyes of Christ, it changes the way we interact with each other. And it disarms the conflict that tends to keep us apart. The third thing that scripture calls us to, that I think is really going to be help for us, helpful for us as we move forward in this season, is crossing the divide. Changing the way we look at other people is a good start, right? But we can't stop there. If we really want to overcome our polarization, we need to find opportunities to reach out and extend love to those who are on the other side of the issues that have been dividing us. We see this happening throughout the entire New Testament. Jesus crosses the divide and becomes human, right? To show us how to live and then to give up his life to reconcile us to God. Throughout his life, we see Jesus crossing the divide again and again to draw people in who had once been on the outside. The early apostles were constantly navigating challenges that surfaced from having these two groups of people with totally different backgrounds and belief drawn together into one community through their faith in Christ. 
So how do we engage in those relationships that feel impossible because we've landed on different sides of heated issues? There are a couple of nuggets of wisdom that I've stumbled across recently that I found really helpful. So I'm going to share share them with you this morning. The first one is really simple, and it comes from uh, Bob Goff, who's an author. He says this. Two words. Are you ready? Assume friendship. Isn't that brilliant? Assume friendship. Often, what gets in the way of our relationships isn't so much that we're not willing to reach out with somebody because we don't like their opinion, but often, we assume that because we have a different perspective on something than that other person, that they don't like us. And there's actually like research kind of backing this up. This is, this is how we tend to interact with each other in our social relationships. And if everyone's operating out of those assumptions, what happens to our communities? We keep becoming more and more divided because we're assuming something about other people that often isn't even actually true. And here's the beautiful thing about being part of the church. We know what we're all called to, right? We know that we're all called to be people who love each other despite our differences. We know that we're all called to have grace with each other. And so what if we just trusted that and assumed friendship as we interacted with people across the divide? I think we'll find that most often, the differences that we worry are going to be impossible to overcome are actually easier to knock down than we think. The other nugget of wisdom that I found really helpful is from an author named Justin Lee. And he uh, says that when you find yourself in one of those conversations where someone's sharing their opinion and you really passionately disagree with them... (laughs) the best thing you can do is to ask them for a story. So rather than asking someone to defend their position with a question like, why do you think that? How could you possibly believe that? He says, shift the question to ask the person to to share a little bit of their story. Ask a question like, how have you been impacted by this issue? Ask a question like, when did you start Uh, to feel passionately about this? Have you had any changes to your perspective? What caused that? You know, how have you experienced the last two years? Stories tell us more about who people are and what they value than their opinions do. And understanding people's experiences can help us to have compassion for them and even find commonality with them, even if we don't agree with their opinion on a certain issue. So how can you cross the divide this week? Is there someone you disagree with that you could just very simply send an encouraging message to? Is there someone you've been avoiding that you could ask to go for coffee with this week? How can you reach out in love to someone in a small way to help move towards a greater sense of unity within our community? And the last practice we're going to touch on this morning is going to be short and sweet. It's simply this. As followers of Jesus, we're called to be people who focus on the fruit. 
In the book of Galatians, Paul talks about the kinds of character qualities that God produces in our lives when we let the Holy Spirit work in us. And he calls these qualities the fruit of the Spirit. Okay, many of you are probably familiar. We talked about this recently. I know there's a lot of, a lot of you have a song kind of in your head right now. But I'm going to read them through. And as I read them, I'm going to invite you to just actually pay attention to each word and kind of think about what it looks like when it, when it shows up in our lives. The Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, that's a good one, gentleness, and self-control. We live in a world that puts a really high priority on being right. But often our obsession with proving that our perspective is the right perspective gets in the way of our ability to love one another well. I think it was Sarah Bessie who once said, being right doesn't give you a pass on the fruit of the Spirit. Being right doesn't give you a pass on the fruit of the Spirit. When Scripture talks about the way that God moves in our lives to shape us and to transform us, it doesn't tell us that he wants us to become more correct and more informed than the people around us. Scripture tells us again and again that God wants to transform us into people who love others well. And he wants his church to be a community of people who embody these qualities of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. And to shine his light into the rest of the world. There's no question that we are living in divided times. The strain that the pandemic has had on our relationships and on, in our, our communities is something that we've all felt. We've all been impacted by, and it's part of the fallout that our society is going to be working through for who knows how long. But in this season of polarization, the church has a unique opportunity to show the world that there's another way and to reflect God's love to the people around us. Not by what we say necessarily, not just by what we say, but by who we are. We're called to be a community where people with totally different backgrounds and perspectives come together and find that the things that once divided us hold no weight in light of Jesus' death and resurrection, in light of the grace of God. We find that there's room for all of us to belong in God's family and that we're united together in him as people who are called to experience and to extend his kingdom to our broken world. 